a Podcast One production. We often look at the digital world somewhat sceptically when it comes to security of information, let alone as a potential solution to recording the provenance of our food. Yet that is exactly where the agri-digital world of the blockchain is taking us. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to AgriMinders. Since human existence moved from individual food gathering to a community-based food production, we've relied on others to assess and warrant the quality of the product as well as the ethics around producing it. However, blockchain-based contracts have the potential to change all that But the question is, will this work in agriculture, where crops take months to grow in remote locations, most of the products have a limited shelf life, and the average age of the producers is now 57, and most of them have more than 30 years of experience in doing it the old ways? To find out, our AgriMinder today is Bridie Olson. Now, Bridie is the CEO of Giora which is a company that has developed a protocol to marry the digital world of blockchain-based transactions to agriculture and the supply of food. Bridie is an active member of the Standards Australia Blockchain Technical Committee, and she has been a contributor to the Australian CSIRO publication, Architecture for Blockchain Applications. She's also authored parts of the Food and Agricultural Organisation of the United Nations publication, Blockchain for Agriculture, Opportunities and Challenges. So welcome to AgriMinders, Bridie. Thank you. It's really good to be here. So Bridie, I think everybody's sort of heard of Bitcoin and mm. people, money of people have lost or gained on it. I know my son even gets paid in Bitcoin for some of the work he does from America. And through that, they've heard of blockchain, but these are just words. Just describe what is meant by the term blockchain. Look, it's, I think, something that calls for a bit of myth dispelling almost. Bitcoin was the first use of blockchain technology, but blockchain has applications far beyond what we now call cryptocurrencies, which are really highly speculative, volatile forms of money. Um, and that's kind of what Bitcoin does. Its main purpose is really trading and people and people move in and out of trading Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, just like you might do with Forex trading. Blockchain, on the other hand, is a type of database. We kind of call it a smart database. And it's smart because it allows you to program in certain functionalities into the data structures itself. And and one of the really key things about blockchain, I mean, you spoke earlier in the introduction about centralised trusted systems. It really shifts that structure. So we're talking about distributed databases. And distributed databases are functionally very different to centralised systems. What what does distributed database mean? Good question. So uh, if you think of a centralised database, it's a typical like hub and spoke style system. So it's like a bank. It's like a bank. It's like Facebook. Any of these centralised systems who hold all the information and we each just interact with our parcel of that data. There's no way, you know, if, if we want to transact, you know, if we want to send money to each other, you can send it to me if you'd like. It's the bank who knows both of our account details, both of our balances, and they facilitate the transaction. We don't transact directly. Uh, in, a, in a distributed database, each of the participants maintains an entire history of all of the transactions that have occurred in that system. 
So it means that we don't need a centralised party to tell us our accounts and our balances. We both have access to that record ourselves. If you think of it in this way, it's a little bit like if you imagine an island where you you have 100 people who live on the island, they all know who lives where in which house, and we have a registry of all the different houses and who lives there. In a distributed system, it, it works in a way where each person, because they know exactly who lives in which house, can act as, a, as an authority or a truth point. So if I were to arrive on, on this island, I'd never been there before, and say, I live on the house on the hill, everyone else, all those other 100 people, know that I don't live on that house of the hill. And so to claim that house, to say it's mine, I'd have to convince all the other 100 people that this was in fact my home. That's really hard to do. And it's very similar to how distributed systems work, to hack them, to change them. You have to corrupt and and to infiltrate and convince every other participant in the network that you actually either own that money, own that asset, have that commodity, or that the value of your product is is bigger than it is. Okay, so can we come back to how we do that later on? But just can you explain to me, if I go to the bank and say, right, Bridie, I'm going to take on a commitment with Bridie that she's going to pay me $100. The bank guarantees to me that that you will pay me $100. Could be just in the form of a $100 banknote, which says I guarantee to play the bearer of this banknote $100. Mm. Or it could be in the form of a letter of credit if it's talking about a farmer. But if that doesn't happen, if something happens to Bridie and it and it and, and that's not my problem anymore because the bank has guaranteed it, so I can fall back on the bank. Same with insurance, I can fall back on that company to make good on that regardless of the extra party actually whether they've got the money or not. They're the ones taking the risk. Who takes the risk here? It seems to me that everybody is is sort of saying, yeah, look, the information's there and just buy, beware, you read it. But if it turns out to be wrong, how, who takes the risk? Uh, so I think there's two there's two separate things here. One is the physical, like the, the physical challenges and, and the way that we relate to each other through different contracts, legal and otherwise. Technology doesn't do away with legal contracts. It doesn't do away with, you know, recourse to other dispute settle mechanisms or, you know, insurance entirely. But what it does do is it gives us ways that we can program and and better secure not just the data but those relationships. So if you think about it this way, um, if I'm a farmer and I'm delivering my, my, my grain to a buyer, I want to be guaranteed that I'm going to receive payment. I hand over my grain and I want to make sure that whenever, you know, the payment terms are reached, seven days, 30 days, uh, that I'm going to be receiving payment for my asset and title will then transfer at that point. At the moment, the farmer's just trusting that that's going to happen. But he's trusting a bank with a letter of credit or something and the bank is guaranteed that he'll get the money. Yeah. Sometimes Who's he trusting here? In, in this system, he's trusting the technology. So we use smart contracts as a way of programming in that title transfer and the payment. So... We call this delivery versus payment in an atomic swap. So what that means is we have one piece of code. So it's it's just one set of instructions. And in that instructions, we have a transfer of the asset or the title from the farmer to the buyer. And in the same set of instructions is the payment from the buyer to the farmer. So the title doesn't transfer unless the payment's made. And you can use smart contracts, which are those bundles of code in a blockchain to execute those sort of clever instructions. What it doesn't do is it doesn't do away with the physical problems. So we have the physical challenge of that grain now already being bred. Um, so that's where you have still this requirement that, you know, blockchain is really part of a solution. It's not, a, you know, it's, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't do everything. But it is a really good mechanism of securing transactions, securing data in new ways. 
doesn't get rid of the need for us to actually, you know, legally contract and, and engage with financiers or otherwise. Bridie, where do you think the blockchain therefore fits into agriculture? What does it offer people in agricultural production? I think if you've been to any blockchain conference for the past two years, you would have heard probably the keynote speaker stand up and say, the best first use case for blockchain, the best case for this commercially is across supply chains and across agriculture, which for, you know, a a low level digital industry, the lowest digitization, uh, it's really exciting to hear technology uh, being first commercialized in our industry. So, I guess the first question is, is why? Like, why is blockchain good for agriculture? And the reason is really threefold. You know, we are naturally distributed networks of participants who all need access to common data about a shared asset, and we don't necessarily trust each other. So those three key components, distributed, common data, and we don't necessarily trust each other, are really critical to saying why blockchain generally is a good solution for agricultural supply chains. The question then is how? How do we actually make use of this technology? And within AgriDigital and Giora, we've been piloting and testing blockchain technology over three main use cases. The first one is around provenance and traceability. So creating end-to-end chains of custody, chains of ownership, linking data from a whole variety of different platforms and devices back to a shared asset in a way that's secure and shareable between participants. The second is really around market and network efficiencies. So because we have just one source of truth, we can remove the need for double data entry, for duplicate copies and for, you know, checking back on invoices and accounts that were paid incorrectly because we didn't have the right information first time up. We can really remove a lot of those back office costs. And really digital technology more generally provides a lot of that efficiency. The third is really around, you know, payments and and finance and how we can get increased liquidity into our supply chains. You know, we know that to meet the sustainable development goals that are relating to agriculture, we're going to have to inject an enormous amount of capital into the production end of our supply chains. And I think you've probably been talking about stuff like this more generally and the pressures being placed on agricultural producers across this podcast. But that's a a really big one. And being able to attract liquidity at competitive prices and, and have multiple options of financiers available to you as a producer is something that is really difficult at the moment and we're hoping that this ability to create digital records, expose them and receive finance in one linked system is really going to change that. So how will how will that work for a farmer selling his grain to a customer overseas? So what it means is you can use, you know, if you're if you're running precision agricultural tools or if you're flying a drone doing some really cool hyperspectral imaging of your crop, you can create an asset that has a very good predicted value on your crop um, or your or your um, or your yield eventually, uh, you can digitize that. And we call it, we talk about tokenizing an asset. So you can create a digital representation of your, of your crop um, and you can expose that to a financier and you can enter into financial arrangements with them. So it's like a score. One of the projects that we've done recently was in Papua New Guinea. We were working with pig farmers. So, you know, they would take photos of their pigs saying, I have a pig, this is, this is its um, tag ID that's it's in its ear, it's RFID tag. Uh, it's been vaccinated on these five dates. Um, the, his photo of it eating sweet potato, extra value. Here's another photo. Um, and then you create this history of this record, which can then be exposed to a financier. And this pig farmer who was never able to receive asset-backed finance before now has a valuable asset that they can get a loan over. Um, so that's really transformative. And we see the same thing in the grains and cotton space. The work that AgriDigital is doing at the moment is collating data, you know, 
from the gin, from the classer, from the warehousing, to be able to create this record of a cotton bale, which can then be exposed to finance platforms and farmers can get access to finance in ways they weren't able to do before without having to go through the extremely you know, rigorous um, trust, uh, trusted relationship building process you do with a bank manager because they can actually see live data about the asset itself. The financier is comfortable to finance in that, in that way. So why is it incorruptible? Why, why should people trust that compared to the fact the bank manager saw it and they can ring the bank manager up and he'll lose his job if he tells any lies? But this is just a computer with some, someone entering data in, probably the farmer entering the data in. Why, why is that incorruptible? Why can that be trusted? Well, the, the mechanism of adding data to a blockchain makes it really hard to be fraudulent, like we kind of like, kind of like what we discussed earlier um, around trying to change one of these ledgers. So the actual data once posted is super secure. It's often encrypted, um, which means that there's great privacy controls around it, definitely is in the Giora system. But it, it allows you to trust what is in there hasn't been changed and there's only one source of that truth. So it hasn't been replicated or changed in the bank manager's system as opposed to what's actually been recorded in the commodity management tool or the photo. doesn't solve the problem of ensuring that we're capturing good data. And I think that's the real question is, are we actually capturing something that is accurate and that's true at the application layer, at the device layer? And we have to go on a journey of kind of broader digital adoption to make sure that the entire puzzle is there. It's not just the database layer under the hood, but it's having the devices there, the sensors there, the right platforms in place, because we can, you know, just pull information from an email, but it's better if we pull information from something that's more integrated into the actual operations of the So with your pig data, how do they do that there? Yeah, in that that instance, we're dealing with quite a low-level digital supply chain, and so they're just taking photos. It's linked securely back to the identity of the phone holder. Um, You know, you have to have the phone within a certain range of the tag in the pig's ear, so you know that at least the tag is there. Um, and, and there's certain certain security measures that we build in, but you're right, it, it doesn't solve the problem of people being fraudulent, but it does give people better ways of being able to audit processes, audit businesses that they're financing. I mean, at the moment, if you're, if you're financing someone on a once annual or maybe twice annual on-farm audit, you're not getting very good visibility over that site. So we're able to provide a much better level of visibility, real-time data, real-time updates when a delivery comes in. We've done some you know, pilot work where you put a sensor, you can put a sensor in the top of a silo, monitoring how much grain is in there. If you match that across to then the inventory records being maintained in the agri-digital platform, and you can start to set alerts for financiers when there's a discrepancy. So it's not so much saying there can't be fraud, but you can build in different ways to essentially better trust that data that's coming in. Once it's in, you know that it's not going to be changed. And you said in your earlier example about 100 people living on an island and you had to convince all 100 that you owned a particular house on the island. How do you do that? How, how, how do you actually create this block that actually people will then believe and convince? And who are the 100 people you have to convince? Yeah, so uh, if we translate that island example into you know the technical language of a blockchain, um, each of those 100 people might represent a node, and a node is someone who's running that history of the of the ledger. Um, it's a machine. It's not actually a person. Um, so it's a computer running the history of the ledger, and each of those nodes um, needs to come to consensus, and the consensus algorithm is the really important part. So that's how the entire network determines 
whether or not transactions or a group of transactions make sense according to their copy. So does it make sense to my copy of the ledger that you own that house? Well, no. And so I'm going to say no, and I'm going to reject that transaction. Um, If though, more than 50% in lots of consensus algorithms, more than 50% of the of the network say, well, yes, it does make sense according to my copy of the ledger. That transaction or block of transactions is then approved and added to the ledger. So there are different consensus mechanisms. Um, some of them have benefits of being faster. Some of them have benefits of being potentially, um, you know, more accurate or leading to a better result in the, in the network overall. Um, and we can probably dive into a whole wormhole around consensus yeah, so mechanisms. I don't, I don't want to do we don't that. need to do that now, but, though. But, but I do want to ask you, you know, so I understand that you can, what you're trying to prove is either you've got a proof of authority, that you've got the authority to make the change, or you're proving that you actually got a stake in that house or that pig, or that you've actually, you're proving that you've done some work on that pig. Or, or, or that house. Is that right? So there are different ways that you can have, if you like, credibility to make changes to the block. I think what we're talking about now is not so much the block, which is the set of transactions. It's, it's about the asset. So the digital asset itself. And the people who can be permissioned to add data, make a change to that asset, um, it depends on the use case. And in any blockchain solution, you want to make sure you have a very, very complex and, and robust permissioning system so that, you know, for example, in our system, only someone who's the custodian of an asset can make a change to the physical status of that asset. You know, they're the one holding it. They're the one who knows, you know, the quality test, the quality testing results. Um, and so I think it's really important to think about permissioning when talking about updating data on an asset. The, the interesting thing about you know blockchain solutions though is when data is added to that asset to that record of a physical commodity, you can see who's added it. You can see if it was pulled you know directly away from the Waybridge, and we can have that Waybridge okay. be an actor. You know you could have your John Deere cloud system be the one who's attaching the information around the geolocation of the harvester when they actually were in the paddock. So there's there's different ways that we can be adding that data and, and trusting that the person who's added it can be can be relied on, both technically through permissioning, but then also by integrating different actors into that ecosystem. So the other bit of jargon you hear bandied around with this is the word oracle. Is that what you're right. talking about? The person or the machine or whatever it is that's providing the data that's trusted is the oracle, if you like, or the, the possessor of all wisdom about those things. Yeah, so if it's like a platform that users interact with. We normally talk about those as, you know, applications, but oracles are right. They, you know, they're, they're sources of information as well and they sit on top of the API layer, so the, the integration layer, and they, they contribute really important information on chain. So they might be, for example, a marketplace or a, a market that updates the price of your grain and, and you can have different ways of, of integrating those, those oracles into the protocol as sources of truth. I guess in, when I asked before who is accountable for this if it makes a mistake, in a sense you are because it's obvious to you who gave the information and you have to make a decision whether you trust that person or not, not the system. So right. if you don't trust the Oracle, if you can see that that information came from, from you know, someone that just looking at the side of the silo and see where the frost came to and you say, well, I don't think that's a good enough guide. I want an oracle which is actually measuring the weight of grain going in, so therefore I won't trust that. So in a sense, 
you're accountable for yourself in that way. Exactly. I mean, if you think about organic status at the moment, the moment all we have to go off is that there's that label, right? We see that we see the organic, the ACO certified label on a packet. What if you could ask for more than that? And you could say, I don't want just want to see that label. I want to be able to scan a code and interrogate what is proving out that certification. It's not just that the farmer told the site operator that this was organic when they received it. It's that, you know, ACO has provided the certificate that I can see the link back to the certificate that was originally issued. I can see the paddock history through integrated data from the precision agricultural tool. And I can see that this is actually an organic product that's proven by an entire data set, not just by a single label and a single claim. It comes down to what the consumer of that data requires. Talk about, you know, the black box that is logistics. You might see that something, you know, a product that you've been looking at purchasing has, you know, a proof of origin, there's some good data on farm coming through and at one point it enters into, you know, the shipping the shipping phase and there's no information there. It might be enough for you to see Maersk as the as the custodian and you trust that they were that they were good good for what they said they were carrying. But it might not be enough and you demand more data as a consumer. Well no, I want to know exactly. I want you to put a GPS location tracker on that container so I know where it is. I want to make sure that, you know, where if a seal is broken on a container, that I that I know that. And there are different technologies you can then use to improve the data capture and improve um, your oversight over that part of a supply chain. But it might be enough for you as a consumer well, to see Maersk. What about insurance events? Can we link it so that if a particular event occurs, like a meteorological station measures some massive rainfall which would wreck your crop, that that automatically sees you get payment for the insurer without having to go through a whole thing of assessors and all the rest of it? Absolutely. So that's a really good example. Um, what you'd have to do is, you know, have have physical relationships that are then replicated in a digital sense, but you can be integrated directly to that weather station and if if a weather event is recognised that meets the terms of that legal agreement, the insurance can just be completely released uh, provi- or the, in the payment paid out to any of the farmers who are entitled to under those under those insurance contracts. So it's a really good use case. Okay, so we can insure through the digital medium. The customer can check that that's the product he wants and it's had the right provenance that he's looking for. We can set up our contract so that it instantly operates within whatever agreed payment terms. Could be instant, could be seven days, could be 30 days, but it's, it's automatic. It can't be varied by anyone else. The last thing is the actual money. When the system, the blockchain system does that event, it doesn't actually physically handle money. How does it actually give that farmer and how does the farmer get cash in the most farmers can't go and buy their next header with with Bitcoin? (laughs) I mean, that's true. It's actually, you know, this is still new tech and the currency part is even though that was the kind of the first use case, it's really the hardest commercially because you're right. I mean, I don't really want to get paid in Bitcoin. It's going up and down all over the shop. Some people might be happy to be, but um, maybe I'm not that risky. So I think it's important for us as as tech providers to be upfront around where there are gaps in emerging technology and where it hasn't completely solved for something yet. And currency is one of those spaces. And people over the past year have been desperately trying to solve for the problem of volatility with currency in in these crypto networks and blockchain solutions only being really able to use cryptocurrency. If we look at, you know, the, the Giora and the agri-digital solution at the moment, 
we either have to run all of our payments off-chain, which means that we're running payments just using traditional banking rails, that's what we call off-chain, or we have to run them on-chain using Bitcoin or something else. Neither of those are really satisfactory. So we've been looking towards other solutions. There's a, you know, a growing field of what we call stable coins emerging. Um, stable coins try and reduce that volatility in what is a, a currency that works well in a blockchain, in a blockchain network. Um, there are some pretty good ones out there, but they're still a little difficult to manage. You normally need to go through crypto exchanges to buy them. But there are some great projects that are trying to make this completely invisible. And that's the objective, is that you have a bank account, regular bank account, and it doesn't matter if you're using a currency that works in a blockchain or regular currency, you can receive your payments securely and seamlessly. And it doesn't matter kind of what is happening under the hood for you to receive that money. The way that we're going about that is working with banks um, to try and get currency more easily into the network, working with stablecoin providers to make the user experience really seamless and trying to help improve the technology so that what was a really volatile currency space becomes something that is useful, that's a programmable representation of money as we know it today without us having to change our entire accounting systems to cater for this new form of money. It's just an improved, in a programmable sense, that we can actually use it with smart contracts, with digital assets, but it's still the same form of currency as we now understand money to be. So it's always been a mystery to me why you couldn't just have something. I think you do have a product called AgriCoin. Uh, It was one of our workarounds. So when we were running pilots, uh, we knew that we didn't want to run a pilot with Bitcoin, but we wanted to prove out that this idea of delivery versus payment could work, which means we needed to make a payment on-chain. So what we did is we just created a a token in the network. We call it AgriCoin, and it essentially represented $1 per one AgriCoin, one Aussie dollar. And we transacted using that to show that there was a lot of efficiency and security that could be gained from using a currency within the network. But the reality is, is that AgriCoin isn't actually valuable. It's good for a pilot and for a proof of concept. What we need is is to be able to bring in a currency token that is truly valuable for our user. So who creates that? A bank or a government? There's a few different organisations that are looking at it. Some central banks are looking at centrally issued digital currencies. So it's essentially, you know, Maz in Singapore has done a really great job of looking at ways that they could issue a essentially backed version of the Singapore dollar that works in blockchain solutions. Lots of banks are looking at this, creating kind of bank-backed digital currencies so that if you hold a, you know, if you hold an account um, with Commonwealth Bank, you could essentially use a, a Commonwealth Bank digital currency instead. But we're still waiting to see some solutions come out there. There's, there's good stuff in the works. In the meantime, our option is largely around stablecoins um, and then working with different funds and, and banks to try and push this commercially. So it's, that's kind of the, the stuff that we're all putting our heads together and working on technically still. So if I want to have a contract or or tell someone that I've um, complied with a particular compliance item, all I need is a piece of paper and a pen, basically. And I write down what it is, I sign it, whoever's authorising it signs it, 
we swap that bit of paper and we're there. If we have a, a $50 note, that's just a piece of paper signed by the Governor of the Reserve Bank to say it's worth $50. Who creates the blocks, if you like, the bits of encrypted data that sit in the web that actually contain that same information? How do you create them? I can't create one. Who creates them? This They call this mining, I think, but I, I don't understand why anyone just can't go and mine. But, you know, you have to involve some... How does that all work? Okay, so it depends if you're in a permissioned network or a public network. So public networks like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, if you wanted to run a node, which is the which is what you'd be using to be mining, you could. So there's a... There's something to do in your spare time. Wonderful. <laughs> um, in a private network, you often have to be permissioned in to run a node for that network. And in those instances, they do that as a way of, I guess, monitoring who are going to be the trusted parties in these in this network. And once they're into the network, they then play that role of validating the transactions and approving them in the blocks. So, uh, so it's a, a programming operation. It is a programming operation. So they're all computers, but they're permissioned in in a in a private network and publicly. You know, you could, if you if you could spin up a node on um, your computer and you had a, a good enough um, oomph behind it, then you could be running an Ethereum node and and being a validator. Okay, in that so network. this this little thing I've created, it, it's it's just a chain of of commands, really computer commands, and within that you you place the information somehow in a way that it can't be removed again. It's a chain of transactions. And so the transactions are just bundles of data. So they're essentially just, yeah, as you say, commands. They're each written by and signed by different parties who are each users within that network um, and collated into, into blocks of data. So, yeah, that's how exactly how it works. So this is sounding to me like it's simple, even though it sounds complicated. Uh, in one sense, it's so much easier to be able to do all this yourself. As long as there's some whiz in the background who understands how to create these nodes and blocks and things, once someone else is doing that and you can just become part of that system, you can do your provenance, you can forget about the banks now, um, the contract is instant, you're not relying on someone's goodwill to pay you on time, so that's the lawyer's gone, awesome. You know, so there's so many good things here. Where is the resistance coming from in swapping over to that? Is it just a not understanding? Is it a lack of trust? Or why is there resistance to this? I think that it's really just a it's a it's a pathway towards adoption that we're just at the beginning of. One of the challenges is the technology is still new. Uh, it's it's not completely understood. And while there are great bits of tech out there it's not necessarily architected together in a way that's really usable and easy. And not everyone has access to a team of 30 developers that that we're lucky to have a really, really big solid team of developers who understand this stuff, can architect it together in a way that's usable. And and it's new tech, it's hard. Um, So I think even though people can see the value in the use case, it's difficult to architect the right solution and apply it to your use case. And that's really the gap that we've seen with Giora is there's this great opportunity with base technology. Ethereum is part of our tech stack, but we use a whole lot of other pieces as well. We've architected it in a way that's really usable for agricultural participants. So you can enter into this network um, and really easily access the tools you need as a developer to create these solutions without having to understand the complexities of protocols, validating consensus mechanisms and everything else that you talked about just then, which is 
a much bigger body of knowledge. So I think it's about making it more usable and bringing it up to the application layer so you can easily plug into it and easily access these scaling and financing and trade opportunities by connecting into a distributed network, making it a little easier. So I've called this episode the ethereal ethereum, which is a way of me saying, I suppose, is this just blue sky? I mean, how far are we from this becoming de rigueur for doing agricultural food and fibre transactions to make them more efficient? I don't think we're too far off. We have use cases that are live. We have got really innovative bodies in Australia, industry representative bodies who are looking at these technologies as commercial solutions to industry-wide problems around counterfeit around lack of finance. So it's definitely something that is in the works in saying that we're not always using the full extent of distributed ledger technology. We're using pieces of it that make sense for now and then we'll keep growing these solutions as as we can. Um, you know, I think like like most projects, you start with you start with the use case that makes the most sense for now. And as you start to digitize things, just like with the internet, you start to see that there are many more opportunities that pop their heads up. You know, we never would have imagined Facebook and Instagram when the internet first came to light. And now, you know, these massive businesses, tech companies globally, it's like looking at the capability to have, you know, drones speaking to tractors. The internet can can enable those sorts of things. And it's about understanding that we're at the beginning of this with blockchain. And there is stuff we can do now. There are commercial solutions that are out there um, that we're working on. We're early days still. And we will be able to do things that we can't even imagine right now in 10 years' time with this sort of technology. Are you getting a lot of pushback from banks and lawyers and people whose jobs effectively you're replacing? I don't think that we're replacing banks or lawyers. I think that particularly in, in Australia, we've had enormous support from the legal community in being able to adopt this technology as, as a way of securing a lot of what they do in the, you know, the, the contracting world and securing that digitizing that. Um, for banks, they're, they're going to continue operating in these new systems of the future. They will adopt and in some cases, you know, really push at, at the forefront with, di- with digitized ways to run transactions. But it does create more of a competitive market, particularly, you know, the tier two, tier three producer who couldn't necessarily access the type of finance they wanted to. This becomes an opportunity for them and it also becomes an opportunity for banks to finance that space if that's something that they're you know, willing and able to do. So I think it definitely challenges traditional ways of thinking, um, like any new innovation, but it's something that there is a, there's a role for all of us to play in working out how we adopt it and, and how we make the most of it and use it for industry good rather than you know, just looking at it with kind of a little bit of anxiety around uh, what it's going to mean down the line. I think we should see it as an opportunity. I mean, I deal with farmers all the time. I, my sense is they would be naturally sceptical of something like this. Are you finding that scepticism? Are you dealing with farmers or are you mainly dealing with big corporates? How are you being received? Yeah, no, we work with farmers. Um, we work with kind of the, the whole spectrum along the supply chain. I think when, you know, when people talk about uh, technologies and they talk about data and they don't understand it, there's definitely an, a natural fear as to what is this doing and wanting to understand how it works. Um, you know, as we found, it's kind of easier than we thought to, to understand how this technology works. You can look into the security around your data storage. People are genuinely worried about data protection and their rights in relation to that. I think that's quite legitimate. So we have a lot of those conversations. But generally, 
you know, farmers don't necessarily want to talk about how consensus works, how nodes work. They want to talk about what does this mean for their business? What are, what are the products that are out there and using this technology? And we say to them, you know, you can get true financial options. You can get financial or you can get liquidity into your supply chain like you've never seen before. You can have an opportunity to prove out your product in market and be able to tell that story uh, in a different way, backed by real data. And that's what companies like AgriDigital are doing. They're trying to use this technology to improve their solutions in market. And and at Giora, where we're trying to help them enable that. We're, we're enabling them to scale out that opportunity and be able to assist more farmers and more of their customers with better solutions. So generally, um, you know, if, unless I'm talking to a developer or a technical audience, we don't tend to talk about the details of the tech uh, we talk about the value and whether that is in, in trade, in finance or traceability, there is enormous opportunity that if we bring together blockchain with the right other digital pieces and parties, there's there's a really good opportunity for those farmers. Are they acceptant of what you tell them? I think we, we don't give our farmers enough credit for how technical savvy they sometimes really are and they they know a good deal when they see it and they call it when, when they don't see the value and that's that's one of the things about this industry that I love. There's that kind of legitimacy to it, but where there is value to be gained, people do see that, they understand it. I mean, any any of the farmers we work with know their business, they know their land way better than we do. We understand the technology and we're trying to do what we can to help make whatever their, you know, their lives a little easier. Well, I must say this series of AgriMinders, one of the joys is meeting AgriMinders and the key stakeholders in Australian agriculture and Bridie is certainly one of the smartest agriminders I've interviewed on here. She's done this whole interview without a single note um, and obviously knows her subject. So thank you very much for being part of this. I think agriculture is lucky to have you working on this. It sounds like a great innovation and I really appreciate your time today, Bridie. Oh, thanks so much for um, chatting the tech bits and uh, hearing what we're working on. We hope it does its part. No problem. I have no doubt that agri-digital protocols will envelop agriculture along with the rest of the commercial world, probably in my lifetime. The three P's we talked about of productivity, principles and provenance, together with a fourth P of inevitable population growth, will no doubt make that a given. But the question for Australian farmers and graziers is how do they ensure this means more prosperity and greater sustainability of their food production businesses? The answer almost certainly lies in knowledge, understanding and flexibility for change. And in this, the old maxim was never more relevant. Time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. So we should help Bridie and her like to ensure we keep up with what will be a brave new agri-digital world. Join me next time on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.